You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. My focus here on the show has always been Caribbean piracy, the West Indies, the New World, and that hasn't really changed. But I have come to realize that it's a mistake to ignore certain aspects of piracy outside of the New World. I was attempting to draw a line of influences down from Francis Drake to the greater pirates in the Golden Age, but I realized that I was missing a major part of the story. One of the greatest influences on the Golden Age of piracy didn't happen anywhere near the New World. There were pirates who, to the minds of many Europeans, especially the Spanish, well, those pirates were a greater threat than anyone in the Golden Age of piracy. They were a combined force of religiously and politically dispossessed people. That's been a common theme throughout the show, and it's one that we'll see many more times, but typically it's been Protestant sects that have been religiously dispossessed. But in this case, there were some Protestants later on in this story, but mostly they were Jewish and Muslim corsairs. And they, even more so than Henry Morgan or Blackbeard, intended to bring down the Spanish Empire. This is episode 75, Oruge and Kizir. I promised myself that I wouldn't get into the Crusades when I began researching today's episode, but I am immediately going to break that promise. However, I'll do so as fast as possible. Well before the Prophet Muhammad was even born, before Islam existed in 603 CE, the Pope commissioned a hospital to be built in the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't just a hospital, it was a hostel as well. It was a place that would give any Christians on a pilgrimage to the holy city food and shelter and protection. Well after it was originally commissioned, Charlemagne built onto it and gave it an impressive library, a library that was added to by subsequent popes and rulers throughout the centuries. It was called the Hospital of St. John, since it was built on the site of an old monastery that was devoted to John the Baptist. Now, the hospital was destroyed initially in the 11th century by Muslim invaders, and 
was rebuilt after the First Crusade, when Christian crusaders took the city back. It continued to serve its purpose of giving aid and food and shelter, but instead of passing pilgrims, it was giving aid and shelter to crusaders. It became a sort of a rallying point for Christian soldiers in Jerusalem. There were knights without a feudal lord back in Europe, there were men-at-arms, and then there were armed chaplains, and they all gathered there at the hospital. In 1130 CE, the Pope made them an official chivalric order of knights. They called themselves the Knights of the Hospital of St. John, or the Knights Hospitalier. They weren't the first holy order of knights, but they were probably the oldest in Jerusalem. Now, they and other holy orders, like the Knights Templar and the Teutonic Knights, well, they stayed in Jerusalem. Whenever a crusade ended, most knights that were pledged to a lord back in Europe would return to Europe, but not these holy orders. They were all pledged to defend Jerusalem against Islam, but they weren't united. They bickered and fought among themselves for position until, in 1291, Jerusalem finally fell to the Umayyad dynasty. The Knights Templar and the Teutonic Knights and most of the other holy orders returned to Europe and were eventually disbanded. But the Knights Hospitalier instead retreated to an island called Cyprus off the coast of Turkey, and then, once that was lost, onto an island called Rhodes. That's an island in the far eastern extent of modern-day Greece. Now, the Knights Hospitalier operated as the Knights of Rhodes for years. They used Rhodes as a base when they sent their soldiers in to defend Turkey and Constantinople from the Ottoman Empire. However, eventually they lost that fight in 1453. The Ottomans, though, continued their march west, into Greece. The Knights of Rhodes fought them every step of the way, but it was a slow and losing fight. One of those losses, among many, many other losses, occurred on the Greek island of Lesbos in 1462, and it's here that our story begins. One of the military leaders of the conquest of Lesbos was an Albanian Ottoman commander named Yakub. In recognition of his achievements as a commander, he was made Aja, sort of a governor or maybe a mayor, over the village called Bonova. There on Lesbos, he took as his wife the widow of a slain Greek Orthodox priest. Her name was Katerina. She was Greek and Greek Orthodox, as her husband had been, but Yakub was Albanian and a Muslim, and soon enough, Katerina was a Muslim as well. Yakub retired from his military career after the conquest of the island, and he opened up a pottery workshop there on the island. It was a successful enterprise, and before long he made enough to buy a ship, with which he traded, all over the Greek islands. Yakup and Katerina had six children, four sons and two daughters. Now, we don't know much about their daughters, we don't even know their names, but we do know a bit about all of the sons. The eldest was named Ishak. The second son, Orush, or Oruk, was born in 1474. He's one of the names you'll need to remember. The third son, Hizir, was born in 1478. Now, a quick pronunciation note on his name. To pronounce it properly requires the use of a sound that I... 
Well, you know how some people have trouble rolling their R's without sounding a bit foolish? That's me with this sound. It's that sound that's so common in Arabic and Hebrew that originates in the back of the throat, but rather than butcher that or sound like a bad parody, I'm just going to call him his ear. He was followed by the fourth and final son, Ilias. Now, Hizir and Oruj both had a characteristic that they shared with Katerina, their mother. They were born with fiery red hair. All six children would help with the family business, pottery. But as the boys grew older, they left the potter's workshop behind and joined their father on his trading voyages around the Aegean and the Greek islands. Now, one had to be a bit brave to trade in the Aegean Sea in those days. It was still a place of conflict. The Ottoman Sultan in 1480 besieged the Knights of Rhodes. See, Greece now belonged to the Ottoman Empire, and he wanted those Catholic Knights out of Greece entirely. The Knights of Rhodes withstood the siege, and even went so far as to establish a fortress on Halicarnassus in Anatolia, what we would call Turkey today. That fortress is called Bodrum Castle, and it's an impressive seaside keep. The Knights of Rhodes and the Ottoman Empire, well, they were engaged in a duel. They had been for centuries at this point, but now most of their fighting was taking place on the sea at least since the entirety of Anatolia belonged to the Ottoman Empire. The knights built castles and guarded them, but most of the seaborne fighting was done through the employment of privateers. There were Greek privateers, sort of freedom fighters, there were Italian naval mercenaries, and then there were men from the Baltic and North Seas that wanted a piece of some of that papacy-endorsed piracy, some of that Ottoman plunder. There were Frenchmen and Englishmen and Dutchmen and Norsemen. All of them wanted to get in on the fight. Now, this fighting, this privateering, was a problem in the Mediterranean, but for the time being, it was no more than a mercantile problem. The Ottoman rulers, the sultans and emirs, considered the deaths and profit losses small enough to be acceptable. But every time that a new ship was taken by one of these European privateers, well, the situation grew more and more volatile. Eventually, those emirs and imams and kings and sultans, well, they would be forced to get involved. But meanwhile, on the other end of the Mediterranean, far from the Levant, far from Greece to the west, the big events of the time were taking place. Philip Gose writes in his 1932 book, The History of Piracy, quote, In 1492, that year of years in modern history, Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella wrested control of Iberia from the Moors and sent them scurrying back across the Straits of Gibraltar. It was revenge for their wrongs, at least as much for the desire to compensate themselves for their lost property, that incited the Moors into an unrelenting hostility against Spain, which ultimately became part of a holy war. When Venetian and Genoese enterprises began to revive the ancient glories of Eastern commerce, the familiar temptation was renewed, and dusky men in turbans and long robes flitted in oared boats from coast to island in the path of the gorgeous, high-decked galleys of the princely Italian cities.
end quote. There is a lot of casual 1932 era prejudice and racism and Western bias in Philip Gose's work, but he does have quite a way with words. He makes a lot of assumptions and factual mistakes, probably for dramatic effect. For example, he states that 1492 was the year all of the Moors were kicked out of Spain, and that's not true. The last Moorish stronghold in Spain was defeated in 1492, but it wasn't the Muslims that were kicked out of Spain en masse in 1492. It was the Jews. The Ottoman Sultan, Bayezid II, sent out a fleet of his best ships to collect the Sephardi Jewish exiles and bring them into his empire and welcome them. He imposed strict rules and harsh punishments on anyone that harmed a Jew for any reason other than self-defense within the Ottoman Empire. He was more than happy to welcome this large population, hundreds of thousands of educated, skilled Europeans. He was once quoted saying, You venture to call Ferdinand a wise ruler, he who has impoverished his own country and enriched mine. End quote. And he was wise in that sentiment. The Sephardi Jews had knowledge that his empire didn't. For example, it was a Jew that built the first printing press in the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople in 1493. There were skilled merchants, physicians, and mathematicians among the exiles. And then there were the shipwrights, the navigators, and the mapmakers. See, the Ottoman galley had at one time been the best ship in the world west of China. They learned from the Vikings and shared knowledge with them. They built a fleet with that knowledge that mastered the Mediterranean. But by 1492, those galleys were old and outdated. The Iberian shipbuilders had taken much of the knowledge that the Ottoman Empire had created and far surpassed it. Christopher Columbus was crossing the Atlantic Ocean at that moment due to the Italian and Spanish modifications that were based on the Islamic design but the Ottoman ships themselves were falling behind. They had to skim near shore on voyages of any real length. But all of that was starting to change now that those Jewish refugees brought in all that new knowledge with them. One of those families of Sephardi exiles that fled Iberia with Ottoman aid eventually settled in the Ottoman Greek city Smyrna on the coast of Turkey, and I should mention, when there is a question between Arabic and Greek names here, I'm going to revert to the name that's used today, the name that we would best understand a place by. For example, Smyrna and Lesbos had Arabic names at the time. They weren't called Smyrna or Lesbos. And Turkey had a Greek name, Anatolia, at the time, but most of the time we will understand them best if I use their modern names. Now that family that settled on Smyrna had a young son who had been born in Iberia. He was younger than Yakub's four sons named Sinan. He was, at this point, still a bit young to be one of those dusky young men flitting out to raid Spanish shipping, but he must have admired those pirates. Now some of those young men that he may have admired were the four sons of Yakub, the four brothers. They had spent several years sailing with their father, 
But then that crisis in Spain called for sailors from all over the Ottoman Empire, including Greece, including their island at Lesbos, and the brothers went out to help the exiles reach Ottoman shores. The second eldest brother, Orush, procured a ship. Now exactly how he did so, the tale differs depending on who you choose to believe. The European historians of the era will have you believe that he captured a vessel filled with good Catholics, killed everyone on board, cursed Jesus, and had tea with Lucifer himself on the deck. The Ottomans will tell you, and, well, they were the ones that were there, that he was merely using his father's ship, the ship of a war hero, you might remember, the ship of an Aja, a governor, a respected man, and the ship of a father of six wonderful children, an innocent ship with no cause to face any trouble on the sea. But in reality, probably neither of those things are true. He probably just bought a ship, probably even a few years earlier. See, Orouge was himself a successful trader and probably bought his own ship to add to his father's merchant fleet. But in 1492, when that Iberian crisis occurred, he and the youngest brother, Ilias, took that ship to the western Mediterranean. They started smuggling Muslims and Jews from Iberia to safe harbors all around the Ottoman Empire. At this point, Orouge would have been about 20 years old, and Elias would have been about 14. It was possibly here on these voyages that Orouge earned his first nickname, Baba Orouge, or Papa, or Father Orouge. Now, some writers will tell you that this is where he earned his other, more famous nickname, based on Baba Orouge, but you should not listen to those historians. They're might be a linguistic connection somewhere, but this isn't the origin of his latter name. On one of those voyages to the Iberian Peninsula, Orouge and his ship were traveling to Spain when a privateer happened upon them, a privateer from the Knights Hospitalier. Orouge and his crew realized they were under attack, and they put up a fight, but his ship was a smuggling vessel, not a privateer vessel. She was built for speed and maybe for stealth, but not really for battle, at least not with the Knights of Rhodes. In that fighting, Ilias, aged 14, the youngest brother, was killed. And then Orouge, the son of a war hero, and a hero himself to many Jewish and Muslim exiles, was captured, along with his crew and his vessel. The Crusader knights imprisoned Orouge and held him in the dungeon of Bodrum Castle on Halicarnassus. Exactly why he was imprisoned is hard to say, and trying to get to the root of the issue is difficult, and it's mired in ideology. Was he the vile pirate that the Knights of Rhodes would claim? Well, we don't have any records of any piracies committed by him before he was imprisoned here, but that doesn't mean that that didn't happen. Was he merely the kind-hearted sailor giving aid to Muslim and Jewish exiles? He did that, but that wasn't enough to imprison a man for. In reality, he was probably a bit of both. See, the Ottoman Sultan had authorized his emirs, his governors, to grant licenses for privateering, and Arouge probably had one of those. If you were going to travel all the way across the Mediterranean to transport refugees from point A to point B, well, it would only make sense along the way to 
take a few prizes and fill your war chest. But the real reason that Oruge was captured was because the Knights of Rhodes were at war with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman privateers that were new to the game were at war with the Knights of Rhodes, with all of the Crusaders. Now, most of the crew of Oruge's vessel had been hauled off to serve as galley slaves on Christian privateer ships, but no one was willing to let Oruge near a ship. See, he was a compelling commander. He was a man that, given the opportunity, and a galley slave would have this opportunity, well, he was likely to convince the men to mutiny. He was best left in a cell all alone on dry land. But throughout all of this, his family wasn't idle. Their mother and father, Katerina and Jakub, and presumably the sisters, if they hadn't been married off, well, they ran the pottery workshop. The eldest brother, Ishak, looked after the merchant fleet. He looked after trade and sort of took that element of the family business over. Presumably, the entire family mourned the loss of their youngest son, Ilias, and they had at some point learned that Oruge had been captured. But they didn't know where he was taken, or whether he was slated to be executed. They might not even have been certain that he was still alive. However, the two brothers that weren't running the fleet, or in chains, well, they planned. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Through his merchant connections with islands all throughout the Aegean and western Mediterranean seas, Ishak was able to procure a ship and a privateering commission. However, neither of those things were intended for him. The third brother, the youngest brother left alive, Kizir, well, he was following in Orusha's footsteps. He was a seafarer, and like his brother, he learned to speak and write in Arabic, Greek, Italian, French, and Spanish. Possibly, even probably, they knew Armenian as well, although we aren't certain of that. While Oruj was still imprisoned, Hizir started privateering. Hizir gathered a small crew and roved the Aegean, looking for Italian merchant ships to capture. As time went on, it became clear that he was a skilled privateer. He was a tactician. He wasn't much of a sailor. He didn't know really much of anything about currents or navigation, but, well, those weren't the suits that were needed to be a successful privateer captain. He needed, 
intelligence, brutality, and the ability to outthink his enemies. But perhaps the most important to his success was the vast network of spies that he had all across the Mediterranean. See, his father, Yakub, was well-known. He was a military commander and a governor, and he had allies all across the empire. He also had that family business that granted them trading partners that, well, they learned things, they picked up tidbits of information, and well, they were willing to divulge some of that information, anywhere from Egypt to Greece to the eastern coast of Italy. All of those merchants knew about the movements of rich and poorly guarded Italian ships that might set sail in the path of these privateers. Hazir used that knowledge to ambush or chase down or capture rich, fat Italian galleys. Now, his older brother, Baba Oruge, well, he had gained a reputation. He had a huge amount of love and admiration among the Muslim and Sephardi exiles. Many of them owed their lives and the lives of their children to Baba Oruge, and they wanted to join with his brother, with his ear, to smite the Catholics and, if possible, to rescue Oruge. Now, the Jews among them knew the arts of navigation. They knew map-making. They knew sailing. See, most of the Mediterranean galleys were not sailing vessels. They had sails usually, but they relied on oars and galley slaves. But the Jews, at least the coastal seafaring Jews, well, they knew the arts of sail and rigging and tackle, the same arts that were currently conquering the New World. They incorporated those new talents into bigger and better vessels for these Ottoman privateers. They captured large Italian ships. They refit them for even better sailing. And then they armed them to the teeth. A Mediterranean galley circa 1500 would have been an entirely different beast than what we think of as a typical pirate ship. First of all, there was a very real possibility that some of them were sailing with old-style Greek dromons. Those were the heart of the medieval Byzantine navy, and they still would have existed in 1500. They were rigged with Latin sails, the triangular sails, and that design dated all the way back to Rome and Carthage. Now, typically, they had two decks of oars, which they relied upon for propulsion. The Dromon was the ship that was used to deliver Greek fire. Greek fire, at one point, was perhaps the greatest weapon on the sea, at least until the cannon came into naval use. It saved Constantinople many times over. Any time that an Arab invasion attempted to reach them from the sea, the Greek fire came to greet them. Greek fire was... Well, it was a chemical solution. No one today knows exactly what that solution was. Some chemists believe that they have discovered what it may have been, but there are no records to prove whether or not they have. Greek fire was a sticky, viscous substance that floated on water and burned. It burned really, really hot. The Dromon was armed with cranes and catapults, and even sometimes a tube at the ship's prow, Sometimes that tube came in the shape of a dragon that connected to pressurized pumps on the decks below, and that literally spit liquid fire at enemy ships. That fire burned and burned. 
No amount of water you poured on it would put it out. And it floated on water. It stuck to skin. And it wouldn't extinguish for hours. It burned slow. If you want to picture a battle at sea fought using Greek fire, while well, there are paintings that depict what it may have looked like, but... Well, in Game of Thrones, first of all, Valyrian steel is based on the semi-legendary Damascus steel that the Byzantines utilized, and then wildfire, that green superfire used in the Battle of the Blackwater Bay, well, that is based on Greek fire. It wouldn't have been green, but you get the idea. However, by about 1440 or so, the Byzantine Empire lost the ability to manufacture Greek fire. It's possible that the Ottoman forces that were encroaching on their territory took over whatever resources were used to make Greek fire and denied it to Constantinople. That might be why the city was lost in 1453. So if Hizir and his privateers did sail on a dromon at any point, it would have been pretty useless. They would have had a cool-looking dragon figurehead, but no Greek fire to spit out of it. Most of them sailed in a galleo, that's similar to a half-galley, smaller than a traditional Mediterranean galley, and originally Latin-rigged, those triangular sails, but those Jewish sailors would have modified them to be square-rigged in a Spanish style. That incorporated all three propellants. There was a square rig for full speed under good winds, there was a Latin rig at the fore to capture any errant breezes and aid in tacking about quickly, and then there would have been a deck of oars. Now, those oars served two purposes. First of all, they allowed you to move when there was no wind, but second, they added that last burst of speed needed when engaging another ship in battle. That system using all three propellants allowed his ear to develop a style that would become famous, that he would make famous. He was able to outrun most of the ships on the Mediterranean. He could arrive ahead of time, before his targets, and he could close in for the kill before the slow-rolling Italian galleys knew what was happening. The prow of the galleo had a ram instead of a dragon, and when they sailed in or rode in at top speed, that ram collided with an enemy ship. Behind that ram, they had a gangplank that would be lowered to allow deadly corsairs to swarm over an enemy vessel. And the boarding parties that these corsairs utilized, well, we'll talk more about them later. But they were backed up by archers and spearmen and scorpions and people throwing javelins. This system was not the most advanced in the world. The galleons that the Spanish and Portuguese were developing, and even some of the ships made in England and the Netherlands, well, they were bigger. They had guns on board more often than not, and they didn't rely on oarsmen, so that allowed them to fit more soldiers and more guns on board. But these ships used by these corsairs were among the best in the Mediterranean at the time, at least for their purposes. With his network, his vast network of contacts and spies, and the knowledge of the Iberian allies that he utilized, Hizir made a name for himself as one of the most successful corsairs in the Mediterranean. His crews gathered men wherever they went. 
They started off just in the Aegean, but they moved on to Turkish ports in the Levant. They moved on to Egypt. They moved on all along the Barbary Coast. Everywhere that sailors and Iberian exiles might gather, well, men flocked to the banner of Hazir. He built a small armada of galleos, maybe six or eight of them, with perhaps as many as 100 corsairs on board each of those ships. Then, after he had gathered sufficient strength, three years after his brother, Oruj, had been captured, one of those many contacts that Kazir utilized brought him word of his brother. They told him where Oruj was being held. Now, the story differs here, depending on who you choose to believe. In the first iteration, Hazir sailed his entire armada on Bodrum Castle on Halicarnassus. His fleet led a three-pronged attack. The ships attacked the navy of the Knights Hospitalier. They rained down flaming arrows and scorpion bolts. They boarded vessels at anchor, and they slaughtered entire crews. Then a small army landed on the beach outside the castle and assaulted the walls head-on. This drew out the defenders and kept their attention. The third party was led by Hazir directly. Only maybe a dozen men, but the best to be had. They snuck in and scaled the castle wall from the rear. They crept in quietly and killed the dungeon guards silently. And then they broke Baba Oruj free. They made their way outside the castle walls with equal stealth, and then the army pulled their way back from the castle walls, and the navy fought themselves free from the bay. That's an exciting version of the story. It's a popular rendition, but it probably didn't happen that way. Instead, more than likely, once he learned where his brother was being held, his ear probably just paid a ransom for him, and then they all walked away. That's how things worked in those days. At first, the brothers returned to their home on Lesbos to visit their family. They might have assumed for years that Oruj was dead. But while they were there, Oruj and Hizir talked about the future. See, Oruj had been a traitor initially. He had been a smuggler for a time and a transporter of refugees. He may have been an occasional privateer, but Hizir had made a profession of privateering. He'd built a small fleet, and really, he was a full-time pirate. So, the brothers sailed for the largest Mediterranean port in Ottoman Turkey, Anatolia, where the local governor, a man named Cezada Korkut, gave to them 18 galleos to continue and expand their operations. These were better ships than the brothers had ever sailed before, and Korkut even gave them enough slaves to man all of the oars. This man, Cezada Korkut, became their patron after a fashion. His name graced their commissions, and the ships he granted them allowed them to expand all across the Mediterranean. Now, the brothers focused, probably on Korkut's orders, mostly on attacking the Knights Hospitalier, the privateers they had all around the eastern Mediterranean. These 18 privateer vessels were sort of a counter to the Catholics. There is... Well, we should mention slaves here. It needs to be discussed. See, unlike the West Indian pirates later on, these Mediterranean pirates, be they Catholic or Muslim, well, they were never in the habit of letting their captives go. 
The later pirates would kill, they would capture vessels, and sometimes they would hold their prisoners for ransom, but once that was paid, they would let them go free. If no ransom was ever paid, the pirates might just drop them off on shore, or sometimes they would give them the worst of the two vessels and enough food to make it home. But that's not how the Mediterranean pirates operated. They killed and captured as well. But if no ransom were paid, they kept the prisoners. Sometimes, if there were no reason to ask for a ransom, if there was nobody valuable, they just kept them from the start. The men were chained up as galley slaves at the oars and worked to death. They were usually underfed, unpaid, and just rowed until exhaustion saw them thrown overboard. They were a renewable resource, there were always more slaves to take, and sometimes it made economic sense not to feed them. The very young children were sent to be raised in Islamic orphanages elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire. The women and girls were assaulted. Sexual violence, against the infidel at least, was accepted and even commonplace. When the pirates had no more use for them, they would sell those women off to the harems on the coast. And don't let images of women lounging around eating grapes in the sultan's harem influence your image of what this was. This was human trafficking and sexual slavery. The only consolation, for now at least, is that there were few women on board any of the vessels captured by the sons of Yakub. In 1502, the patron of Oruj and Hizir was granted a new governorship, but it was one that Korkut saw as a demotion rather than a promotion. I should point out, though, that Korkut was not just some governor. He wasn't just some emir. Korkut was the son of the sultan. He was one of the sons of the sultan, but he was a prince of the Ottoman Empire. For these privateers, he was a powerful friend, but... By 1502, his influence in Istanbul was waning. When he got his demotion, he actually granted several more ships to the two brothers and expanded their fleet. However, in return for these new ships, he required them to undertake a few government contracts. See, there was a war happening in Europe. Due to a bunch of European politics between France and Spain and the Kingdom of Naples and Italy and the Papal States, well, they were all fighting for control of cities and regions in modern-day Italy. And this Ottoman prince, Korkut, decided to throw his hat in the ring. He decided to try for a city on the coast called Apulia. Now, imagine you were a big cat maybe a mountain lion, and you saw a huge pack of wolves fighting one another over a recent kill, what would you do in that situation? A cautious mountain lion would move on. See, nothing would stop those wolves fighting each other faster than someone else showing up to steal the kill. That would instead unify them. Big cats are survivors, and know when to pick their battles. Cezada Korkut, prince of the Ottoman Empire, was not a cautious lion. His armada, now led by Oruj and Hizir, arrived off the coast to besiege and even to attempt a landing on the city, Apulia. However, 
when the several Catholic navies in the region that were all busy fighting one another, when they got wind of the Ottoman fleet in their waters, well, they stopped fighting and fell on Oruj and his ear. This entire attempted invasion was, well, it was a bust. The Ottoman fleet just disbanded and went home. Korkut, after this failed invasion, fell into further disfavor with the sultan, with his father. His attempt on Italy had cost men and money and ships, and it had gained the empire nothing. Korkut feared at this point that his father was planning to have him killed, so he just pulled back from international politics and set about administering his region. For now, at least, that was his plan. Oruge and Hizir, his privateers, well, they were left to their own devices, but they were left with their fleet. The two brothers had the opportunity to do as they wished, and they decided to sail west for the Berber coast of North Africa. They set up a base of operations on an island called Jerba in modern-day Tunisia. Now, Jerba has a storied past. According to legend, Odysseus stopped there on his voyage home from Troy, Jewish legend actually states that refugees fleeing the destruction of the first temple settled on Jerba in 586 BCE. There might actually be some truth in that. At least well before Rome fell, Jerba had a stronghold and was home to many, many Jews. Now we're talking about back when Carthage stood and back when Hannibal crossed the Alps. There were probably Jews living on the island. It was an excellent place for a base. It was an island, and thus it was difficult to reach except by a boat. It had a beautiful bay that was surrounded by natural defenses that made it among the most prized possessions on the Barbary coast. And then there were centuries of castle building to further defend Jerba. It's, for the Jews that fled their homes at least, a place not unlike Jamaica. It was a safe, defensible haven, far away from their enemies, on which the Jewish population could defend themselves from a hostile world. However, since Rome fell, things on Jerba had changed. The kingdom of Sicily claimed the island for a time, and then the Umayyad Caliphate took it over, and then Sicily took it over again, but by 1503, when Oruj and his brother arrived there, Sicily was in the hands of the Ottoman Empire, so Jerba once again belonged to a Muslim caliphate, but not the Ottoman Empire. A quick breakdown of the makeup of North Africa looked something like this. On the Atlantic coast, directly across the Strait of Gibraltar from Spain, was Morocco, ruled by an independent caliph. This included most of what is modern-day Algeria as well. To the east of Morocco, a smaller and nominally independent emirate called Algeria existed, and to the east of that was Tunisia, and that was controlled by an entirely separate caliphate called the Hafsid dynasty. The rest of the Maghreb, including Libya, was Ottoman territory. Now, Egypt was actually ruled by an independent Mamluk dynasty, but for now they're not important to the story. However, the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, saw an opportunity here. The Maghreb, the entirety of the North African coast, was fractured. They had no central leadership. Morocco and Tunisia were independent from each other and from the Turks. 
so the Catholic monarchs thought to gain a stronghold in North Africa. They wanted to, well, their propaganda was that they were going to continue the Reconquista, but they were actually just expanding imperially past Spain's borders. Now, this was a problem for the Tunisian Hafsid Sultan. See, to the east, he had Ottoman forces pushing at his eastern border. They wanted to incorporate his dynasty into the Ottoman Empire. And then to the north, he had Spanish forces coming in and capturing cities, making landfall and landing armies. So he decided it was in his best interest to cut a deal. There were two brothers with a large naval force that needed a base of operations in the western Mediterranean. The Sultan, the Hafsid Sultan, allowed them to use Jerba as a base, so long as they gave him one-third of all of their profits. The brothers agreed. They agreed that they would cleanse his waters of a Spanish presence, as long as the Hafsid Sultan furnished them with men and ships and a base. Once this deal was cut, the brothers set about planning how best to fill their coffers and how best to rescue Tunisia. They settled on an ambitious plan to capture galley slaves and ships and a huge amount of money. In 1504, the Pope sent two large, well-armed galleys off from Genoa to collect his tributes from the Italian cities north of the Alps. They loaded up chests full of silver and gold and prepared for the short voyage back to mainland Genoa. They were passing by the small island of Elba when the lead ship of the two, leagues ahead of the second and well out of sight of the other, spotted a small galliot off the coast of the island. Remember the square-rigged European-style sails the Sephardi refugees introduced to the Corsairs? Well, those sails gave the captain of the first galley a false sense of security. More to the point, the sea west of Italy had been free from piracy for centuries. The Italian, French, and Spanish navies all patrolled those waters. Any sensible pirate would have to be mad to sail there, so that captain sailed on without worry. That galleo started toward the Italian galley on a course for interception, and the galley actually slowed down at first to see if she needed aid. Philip Ghost describes what the captain saw thus, quote, The Italian saw that her deck was a mass of moving turbans. Without hail, even before the galley had time to stand to, a shower of arrows and shot was poured onto her crowded decks. A moment later, the moors were swarming over her sides, led by a thick-set figure with a fiery beard. End quote. The reality was a bit less dramatic than that. The galley actually did stop to help the galleo, only to see two more small galleos come in fast to surround his ship. His men realized their mistake. They fired on the galleos, but they couldn't hold off the incoming arrows, and they surrendered. See, that's why we actually know something about this attack. It was high profile. But the prisoners here were important enough to ransom off, so they actually lived to tell their story. Those stories are why we know about the Corsair captain and his brother and their fiery red beards. It can be easy to forget that these brothers were Ottoman, but not Arabic. They were Armenian Greeks, and they had their mother's red hair and thick, long red beards. 
See, the Italians described their Redbeards in detail and named the two pirate captains Redbeard, in Italian, Barba Rosa. These stories, the first real stories to reach the European mainland, gave the brothers their names, Oruge and his ear, Barbarossa. It was probably Oruge, the elder, who was in command here, but the following move was probably Hazir, and it seems that there was some argument about it. Hazir wanted to capture the second ship, but Oruge thought that it would be better to take this first wonderful Italian galley and all of the riches on board and sail away. Now, there may have been some brotherly competition in this. If they took that plan, Oruge would get a big Italian galley, and that would see him raised above his ear, his brother, irreparably. In the eyes of all of the men in their crews, his ear would be a subordinate, not a partner. So his ear probably wanted to capture that second Italian galley to have a galley of his own. But he had a plan, and it was the sort of plan that pirates in the future, they would have admired it. Hazir suggested that they strip the prisoners, put them on the galleos, and then row those galleos off to hide. Meanwhile, the corsairs would remove their turbans and put on the Italian uniforms. They would fly the Genoan flag high and hail that second galley in. Then, when the galley thought that perhaps her partner needed aid, the pirates would open fire, and then the galleos would row in suddenly to surround her. This plan, developed by Hazir Barbarossa, by Redbeard, was the sort of plan that would have made Blackbeard proud two hundred years later. Oruge consented, he agreed, and the pirates put the plan into motion. When the day was finally done, the corsairs sailed away with two brand new Italian galleys. They were filled with good Italian guns and tens of thousands of florins in goods and coin. The oars were manned by Christian slaves, and, well, the Pope, they assumed, and they were correct, would pay to have the dignitaries returned. When the Barbarossa brothers returned in their fancy new Italian galleys, the people of Gerba hailed the pirates, and, really, the Barbarossa brothers, well, they really weren't pirates. The Pope certainly thought they were pirates. Spain and Italy and France saw them as pirates when they learned of what had happened. But the Sultan of Tunisia didn't. The Ottoman prince, who was their patron, didn't see them as pirates. And the Ottoman Sultan didn't see them as pirates. But this sort of action, this breed of privateering, well, it would influence the English and Dutch privateers that paved the way for all of the New World pirates that would come later on. The fame that this single capture brought to the Barbarossas also brought them followers. Their ships swelled with warriors willing to fight and die for them. Some historians have called the warriors that signed up to sail with the Barbarossas Mujahideen, Islamic guerrilla forces that were fighting against outsiders in their lands. Now, this wasn't yet really accurate. They were still privateers and corsairs. This action also brought the brothers' allies. The Ottoman sea commander, Cortuglu, sailed for Gerba. He wanted to join the forces of the brothers Barbarossa. His armada was among the strongest in the Mediterranean. 
The Jewish population of Jerba, the Sephardi Jews in Ottoman lands, well, they flocked to the banner of Baba Orush. Now that he was free and operating out of a port friendly to the Jewish people, Jews from all over the empire wanted the chance to fight Spain, to join up with the Barbarossas, and perhaps, if they played their cards right, to regain their homes. It's possible that around this time they were joined by that young Jewish exile we mentioned earlier, Sinan. He would have still been a boy, and probably was still too young to join up, but perhaps old enough. However, many other young Jewish men did join the fleet. There were many motivations for all of the pirates that joined up, similar, some of them, to the pirates that would sail later in the Caribbean. There was the lust for gold, there was plunder and adventure, and even revenge. But there was something more that drove all of these Jewish and Muslim sailors to join up with the Barbarossa fleet. See, the Catholic monarchs were expanding into Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, and it was becoming a real problem for them. It was a war, and it was a war that, if the Catholic monarchs won, the Jews and Berber Muslims in North Africa would face real persecution, maybe an end to their way of life. See, the Spanish had captured fortifications and castles. They were getting a foothold, and it was going to be up to these corsairs to push them back. Next time, we're going to look at the opening moves of what was really a holy war, that was being fought on the Mediterranean by these Mujahideen and the warriors for Zion. We're going to follow Oruj and Hizir Barbarossa. We're going to follow Sinan the chief, the great Jew as he was called. We're going to follow Kortuglu Muslihideen in his fight against Spain. We're going to follow all these privateers in their fight against Charles V and the entirety of the Holy Roman Empire. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody that has left us a donation or just mentioned the show to their friends. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, and I really like doing this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
The old captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight